Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Living the Truth, with a message titled, Christian Slaves. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 6, 1 to 2, which says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Now, before I deal with the problem of slavery and the apparent scandal that the New Testament urges slaves to submit to their masters, let's start by understanding our passage in context. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and then on to chapter 6 are chapters that deal with the internal life of the church. We've dealt with how people are to treat each other, and then we've gone on through a lengthy passage regarding widows. Then the way in which a congregation is to think about and treat their pastors. That was in chapter 5, but lest we think that the internal life of the church is the only concern in chapter 5, let's remember that looming over the entire book is the idea that the church of Jesus is the pillar and buttress of truth to the world. The church alone can bring the gospel of Jesus to the world. But if the church is not behaving in a way that the church is intended for her to behave, Well, then her witness falls down and the world can't hear the gospel. And so proper behavior in the household of God is what is necessary for the church to continue to proclaim Christ. Now, chapter 6 begins with a word to Christian slaves. Now, this is very important. It's not as if 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 is a word about slavery in the world, and it's an instruction that slave owners can use to justify slavery and to force slaves to submit to their harsh demands no matter what they are. You know, keep that in mind. The book is about how to make the gospel available to the world, and we're going to return to that. Well, good. So now let's talk about slaves and slavery. It's difficult to come up with accurate numbers, but in my own reading, I've read estimates, you know, ranging from about one-third to one-half of all the people living in the Roman Empire were, in fact, slaves. And so since the church of Jesus often reached out to the poor and the marginalized, one would have to imagine that a large part of the church was comprised of slaves. They were slaves when they heard the gospel, and now being in Christ, they no doubt wondered what to do with their slavery now that they were called sons and daughters of God. And to carry on with the context, Paul will move from the matter of slavery to a renewed warning about false teachers, and then he will move on to have words to speak to those who are wealthy. Now, overall, Paul is concerned with how the dynamic inside the church will impact her ability to reach the outside world with the gospel. And so, as always in this book, Paul is concerned that Christian behavior reflect well on the watching world. Well, very good. Let's get back to the matter of the scandal. If Paul's concern is that slaves behave in such a way that they give no ground for accusation that the teaching of the gospel should not be reviled, well, it would seem that one way to do that is for slaves to treat their masters with honor. Rather than lead a revolutionary movement to eradicate slavery, the Bible seems to do the opposite. 
It's asking slaves to knuckle under. And ah, there is the rub. In our contemporary world, over which still hangs the awful memory of the African slave trade, passages like this one do seem to present the world with a bad witness today. I mean, after all, was the Christian faith in its infancy pro-slavery? And it's not just here. You know, in 1 Timothy 6 that we read such a command. You know, Ephesians 6 verse 5 commands slaves to obey their earthly masters, and it says, with fear and trembling. And for some, that kind of talk in the face of something as inhumane as slavery, well, that's surely a scandal. After all, what then is the nature of the Christian faith? And so let's not flinch, but let's talk about the New Testament church's relationship to slavery. Now, we need to begin by saying that our conception of slavery and that of the Roman world 2,000 years ago and even further back, you know, to the Old Testament when Moses gave the law some 3,500 years ago. I mean, all those time periods in history have very different outworkings and definitions of what is meant by slavery. So let's start then by identifying what we think about when we think about slavery today. I will say we typically think about two things. First, we tend to think about the scourge of African slavery in the Western world, especially in the 1600s and 1700s. And second, we tend to think about human trafficking in the world today. So let's start with the tragedy of the African slave trade. As far as we know, slavery was introduced to the North American continent in the year 1619. It was a privateer ship or a pirate ship that brought 20 enslaved Africans to the shore in Jamestown, Virginia, which was then a British colony. And over time, the slave trade flourished captured by their own countrymen in Africa and sold to European traders, slaves were sent to Europe and North America. And in case you didn't know it, yes, Canada did have slaves. That is, before we became a nation, but we were under British rule. Slavery was abolished in the British Empire in 1834, ending slavery here as well. And of course, as we know, the U.S. fought a civil war, ending slavery in 1865, some 30 years later. But along the way, over some 250 years of African slavery, it had been a brutal business. Harriet Beecher Stowe's moving book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, painted a picture of cruelty that shocked the senses. And several things need to be remembered about the North American and European African slavery experience. Slavery was ethnic. Many felt that Africans were an inferior race, and so it was at its very roots, not just slavery, but it was institutional racism. And furthermore, African slavery was overwhelmingly cruel. Slaves were not permitted to read and so were kept in a permanent inferior status. Slaves' living conditions were often horrific. One wouldn't keep an animal in that way. The rights of slaves were non-existent and so they were easily beaten. Women were often raped without any appeal to law. Slavery was overwhelmingly racist, and so much so that many whites honestly believed in the superiority of the white race. And so when we in our world think of slavery, that's what we tend to think about. But we also think about human trafficking, including the sex trade in which young girls are often kidnapped and sold in financial desperation. Their innocence is plundered and their lives are destroyed. The U.S. State Department says that there are still over 100 countries in the world today that have some form of slavery. Forms of modern slavery include forced child labor, forced marriage, 
commercial sexual exploitation, bonded labor, and forced recruitment into revolutionary military groups. We hear of young teenagers captive and forced to become killers. And so from that vantage point, it seems quite reasonable and proper to ask the question, how in the world could the Bible command slaves to submit to their masters? Of course, in many cases, that was the only option. But to make it a biblical command, well, that seems oppressive and cruel. But of course, as is often the case, we start from our contemporary experience and then read that back into the scripture. And that should not be so. So let's start from the ancient perspective. It is true that the Mosaic Law, some 350 years old now, did allow for slavery. Slavery is an ancient practice, and Israel inherited it, what the ancient world thought was acceptable. But the Old Testament made laws around slavery, and here's one that might surprise you. Exodus 21 verse 2 says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Now, there already it sounds very different from African slavery. African slavery was either for life, or if one could have someone purchase their freedom, that was grace. But here for Hebrew slaves, slavery could not go on for more than six years. However, there were cases where a slave might want to remain in the house of his or her master. You know, in that case, there was a procedure to allow for that. Does that sound strange? You know, a slave might say, I'm treated very well. My lifestyle is better than I could find somewhere else. And furthermore, there were laws governing the treatment of slaves. Exodus 21, 26 and 27 says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out a tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. And so slaves were protected from abuse by the law. The Old Testament never considered slaves to be lesser human beings, and it gave them the same protection that it would give a free man. Oh, but that leads to a question. How did a person end up in slavery? Well, there are a number of ways, but by far the most common was indebtedness. You know, another reason was that a destitute person might become so destitute that they would sell themselves to slavery. And still another was punishment for a crime. But that's not what we think about today. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. When was the last time you heard a message on heaven or hell? You know, for many it's been quite some time and others never. Everything many know or believe is based on pop culture, Hollywood, even works of fiction. Do you know that heaven and hell are real places and that Jesus himself spent a great deal of time talking about both? I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt exactly what the Bible has to say. And I believe it's so important. I spent last year writing a book simply named Heaven and Hell. And I want to pass it on to you free during the month of November. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and request your free copy. And while you're there, if you'd like to send a gift for supporting Back to the Bible's teaching ministry, that would be greatly appreciated. There were Old Testament rules regarding the purchase of slaves who were captives of war. These were slaves that were not Israelites, and I won't have time to discuss this, but let's fast forward to the world of the first century, the world in which Paul gave orders for Christians to obey their masters. What was slavery like in the Roman world? Well, that's a question that's not easily answered. 
A number of historians have pointed out that slavery in the Roman world could be a very brutal business. But others have also pointed out that under Caesar Augustus, a great many laws had been put into effect that did provide protection for slaves. Again, we don't have time to get into the details, but we do notice that the text we've read begins with the words, let all who are under the yoke as bondservants or slaves. Paul agrees, it is a yoke. But the term yoke should not conjure up an image of abuse. Rather, a yoke refers to labor in which the one under the yoke is being directed by someone else. That person is under someone else's authority. They don't have the freedom to quit or to sue for better work conditions. You know, in some ways, you might think of the economic yoke that people bear today. Let's say a person has a family, but he also has debts. Quitting his job, that's not an option. He might feel the same yoke as an ancient slave might feel, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's get back to Roman slavery. This is a difficult enterprise to describe. Yeah, great many slaves lived in very difficult conditions, but we also know of a great many slaves who were highly educated. Some were physicians, others ran businesses for their masters, and still others were philosophers and teachers. Some slaves lived in very expensive houses that were their own and lived lives that free men could never even dream of. And yet horribly, some slaves were forced to participate as gladiators killing one another for sport to a bloodthirsty crowd. All of that to say there is not one picture that should come to mind when we think of slaves in the ancient world. Again, like in the Old Testament, Roman slavery came out of a wide variety of situations. Sometimes people became slaves because they were a part of the defeated armies of Rome. Instead of being executed, they're sold as slaves. Still others became slaves because they'd broken the law. Others, as we've seen before, were indentured slaves who were in slavery until their full debt was paid off. And still others sold themselves into slavery. And then there were those who were kidnapped and sold into slavery. Paul mentions this last group back in 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 when he spoke of enslavers. He said these people were unholy and profane, ungodly sinners. I hope you're beginning to capture an image of slavery which is not one-dimensional, nor an image that resembles the horrors of the African slave trade. This is different. But even so, even if a great many slaves basically held down a job, as we would think of it today, and had a reasonable standard of living, and could have a family, and live out a normal life, and yet, should not the New Testament have spoken against slavery and this form of economic oppression? See, if the Apostle Paul had carried on a crusade against slavery as a system, well, it would have resulted in economic chaos, and it would have branded the Christian movement as subversive and a revolutionary system. Very few would have heard the saving message of Jesus and his call to be reconciled to the Father. Instead, Christianity would have been understood only politically, and that was the danger. The message of the gospel would have been lost. However, does the New Testament ignore the difficulties of being a slave? Well, hardly. Uh, we might think of that one chapter book in the New Testament, the book of Philemon. It's a short letter written by Paul to a Christian slave owner, a man named Philemon. And yeah, you heard me right. He was a Christian slave owner. He has a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus has run away and Paul came upon him in Rome and he won him to faith in Christ. And with that, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And yes, you did hear me right. Paul sent this slave back to his master. 
But the letter of Philemon is utterly countercultural. Listen to what Paul says in Philemon 15 and 16. He writes, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That was the miracle of the New Testament. For the first time, the world was hearing that Christian slaves and their Christian masters were brothers and sisters in Christ of one family together, and that changed everything. They were not slave and master. They were brothers and sisters in one family. You know, it's been commented on more than one occasion that under such circumstances, slavery as an oppressive institution was destined to die. Now then, having said that, let's get back to slaves obeying their masters. The theologian R.C.H. Lenski has written, If a Christian slave dishonored his master in any way by disobedience, by acting disrespectfully, but speaking shamefully of his master, the worst consequence would not be the beating he would receive, but the curses he would cause his master to hurl at this miserable slave's God, his religion, and the teaching he had embraced. So that is what this new religion teaches its converts. Instead of bringing honor to the true God and the gospel, this slave would bring about the very opposite, to the devil's delight. And that brings us back to what Paul is saying in this book. He wants the behavior of believers to be such that the gospel is unhindered. Now, I suppose I might also add here that the Christian faith had no power in that day to change slavery. Christianity had no political power, but given time as the gospel grew, an entire institution of slavery would end. And so that's the explanation of verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We might then apply that to our situation. Whomever you work for, make sure that your attitude toward your employer is such that when they think about your faith in your God and the gospel you proclaim, that there's no reason at all to curse Jesus. May your attitude at work be such that people say, well now, if that's what Jesus does for those who work for a living, let's have more Christians. It's good for the economy, but in so doing, let the gospel be heard loud and clear. Now then, Paul's not done, because there is another issue. If the Christian gospel was such that it ultimately leveled the playing field between slaves and masters, then it might be that once a slave saw that he had a, you know, a Christian master, he might well say, well, if that's the case, I no longer have to be in submission to him. After all, we're equals. If he tells me what needs to be done, well, then I'll tell him what needs to be done. He's not my boss. He's my brother. And interestingly enough, in that regard, Christian tradition teaches us that in the case of Nesimus, the runaway slave, in due time, Nesimus became a bishop in the ancient church. For among the Christians, a slave could rise to be a leader of God's people, and that was the glorious nature of the Christian faith. But these wonderful and glorious truths of the gospel might be misunderstood. Imagine the conflict between slave and free if the master of his business could no longer take leadership in his work. What if the realization that there's level ground before the cross led to chaos in the workplace? And again, this is so easily transferred to our situation. If you have a Christian boss, you have to do what he says. Aren't you brothers? And if you are, what right does he have to tell you what to do? 
And against this background and the realization for potential abuse, Paul writes to clarify any misunderstandings. Look again at verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who are benefited by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. In other words, if you're working hard for your non-Christian master, ensuring that the name of Jesus is not liable, then think that when you have a Christian master, you should work all the harder. Well, because those who are benefited by the work of the slave is their Christian master. Imagine what happens when a Christian business person or a Christian company owner prospers. Well, you might say, well, I guess they're getting richer. Well, that might be. But what happens when a faithful Christian becomes rich? As we get to the end of 1 Timothy, we'll see that Paul has some very clear instructions to the wealthy as to what they are to do. If wealthy Christians actually take the gospel seriously, then that wealthy Christian will make sacrificial giving not just a priority, but as a calling from God, a sacred obligation. And so when a Christian employee works extra hard for a Christian boss, that employee will have a wonderful privilege of partnershiping in the advancement of the gospel. Paul says those who are benefited by the extra work of the believing slave, those are believers. Think of it. That employer is one in Christ's family with the slave. Why wouldn't you want to benefit him or her? John, thanks so much for your message. You know, it's been pretty in-depth, but what would you say to people or what could people say to others that say the Bible supports slavery? Well, I think the first thing that we need to respond is to say, no, it does not. Um, And then I think we might be able to say to someone, would you like to uh, go through some Bible passages and let me help to show you how those that you might consider to be a pro-slavery passage is anything but that. So I would think that we should look to engage in a dialogue, um, but if no dialogue is called for and just a very simple answer, I think the simple answer is no, it does not. In fact, the Bible levels the ground so that slaves and masters are on solid ground together. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.